so good to be together. How are we doing? We doing all right? <laughs> well, you look good at least. You look good. It's so good to be together. And, and I don't like to start a sermon this way, but I'm going to anyways. I need to make a really important announcement. And so you're seated. Be, be ready to brace yourselves. This week, our staff is going to be starting a serious conversation on bringing donut holes back. Sorry, I got issues. Just kidding. And when we bring donut holes back, donut holes lead to hugs. So, you know, mixing and me. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. The high schoolers are the only ones that are happy about the donut hole thing. I'm kidding. It's good to see you. It's good to be together. Grab your Bibles and go to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. You picked a vital Sunday to be here. This chapter, these few verses at the beginning of chapter 2 are the pinnacle in the book of Habakkuk. So thank you for joining us together for our 1030 time to gather and to worship. Verse 4 is probably or has been recorded to be one of the most imperative verses in the whole Bible. I call it the tipping point in the book of Habakkuk. It is quoted three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul and once by the writer of Hebrews. And so if you have your Bibles, we are going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. And last week... We left off with Habakkuk coming back to God after receiving a vision. He comes back to God and he cannot believe what he's been told. His first prayer is, God, what in the world are you doing? Why do I have to look at suffering and evil? Why don't you do something about this? And God responds, man, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And then he unpacked what he was going to be doing. Which brought Habakkuk to this point of questioning God. Why, God, do you seem inconsistent I just heard what you said you're going to do with the Babylonians and how they're going to come and take over your people and capture them and essentially wipe them out. This doesn't seem like you, God. He's at this place of beyond belief. This place, have you ever been where you're like, you have got to be kidding me right now. This is his lament to God. And by the way, that point of you got to be kidding me always happens in the heat of the moment. Do you realize that? You, you learn that? Like in there's emotions are elevated. You have this thought that comes in your mind like, wow, seriously? You got to be kidding me. I remember one time Heidi was really upset with me. I didn't do anything, but she was upset. And if you believe that, I've got some dirt I can sell you. But she was upset. And she was anticipating me asking her, Are you mad? It was on the tip of her tongue. 
But I had this thought in my mind, like, you got to be kidding me right now. And so instead of saying, are you mad? I said, you got to be kidding me. And before I could get out, she goes, yes, I am. And I'm like, good, because I thought you were mad and walked up to you. And we both just started laughing. He's got this thought, God, you've got to be kidding me. And last week we learned he moves beyond you've got to be kidding me to this place of defiant faith. It's the theme of the whole book. And so this morning I'm going to do the best I can to define or explain what a defiant faith is. Everyone in this room. Every human being in the world has faith. Everyone. Everyone in the room, everyone in the world has a defiant faith. Whether you realize it or not, you either have a defiant faith from God and his word, which we are all born this way, bent away from God and his sovereignty and his word. Or you have a defiant faith towards the world. And if you have a defiant faith towards the world, your faith is not going to make sense to the world, but in your heart and in line with the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures in your life, you have a defiant faith in God. Last week, I set the foundation for building a defiant faith in your life, for having the knowledge and understanding behind faith. There were three crucial points we closed with, and we're going to launch by reminding you of these. First, a defiant faith appreciates God's character. There must be an understanding and a value to God's character. And the only way you know God's character is if you are in God's word. You either appreciate God's character. It's not just information in the head. That's why I use the word appreciate, meaning understand and value. You either appreciate God's character or you don't. And if you don't, it's always because you're redefining it to fit your will, and your desire, or your character. Number two, you accept God's sovereignty. You agree and you receive God's sovereign will, that he's in control. You either accept God's sovereignty or you don't. And when you don't, it's because you're the king of your heart. You're calling the shots. Your trust is in yourself. And then last, you allow God's purpose. You acknowledge and accept God's purpose. You either appreciate God's character or you don't. You either accept God's sovereignty or you don't. You either allow God's purpose or you do. There's no don't to God's purpose because God is sovereign. His purpose will stand. If that was not true, he would not be God. And so, tethered to our faith is emotion. You cannot get away from emotion. We're human beings. And tethered to our faith, along with emotion, is knowledge and intellect, the way the mind thinks. And then there's the will. 
emotion, intellect, and will help you to understand who you trust, yourself or God. There was a rabbi, a Torah teacher, a teacher of the law, and he was teaching in Betzafar, the elementary school age in the Hebrew world. And what the Torah teacher taught, the rabbi taught the children, was imperative for the rest of their lives. One of the first lessons rabbis still to this day teach the kids in Betzafar is the goodness of God being sweet like honey on the lips. This Torah teacher wanted to teach his students about the substance of their faith. And so he sat the children down on the ground in the dirt. Betzafar, the to- it was a room next to the temple, or next, I'm sorry, next, yeah, next to the temple where, um, or I'm sorry, the synagogue. Don't write those things down. Just know it was, it was a side room. And he sits them down in the dirt and he takes a, large or medium-sized jar of stones, and he pours the stones out, and he piles them up, and he says to the children, how many stones do you think there are? You know, and you see the little ones, they're trying to count, but they can't see them all because it's a large or medium-sized pile of shiny stones. He says, what I want you to do, children, is write the number down on the ground in front of you. What number do you think there are? And so the children, they write down their guess. And then he says, now, next to that, I want you to write your favorite food. What is your favorite food? And so they write down their favorite food. And then he reveals the number, the exact number. They didn't know the exact number. But they knew there was a number. They knew the number existed. And they began to look at their numbers to see who was the closest to the exact number of stones that were on the ground. And then he says to the children, now, what was your favorite food? And they all start talking about their favorite food and how much they like it and they could express it. And then he says to the children, children, which one of the things you wrote down, the number of stones or your food was the right answer. And they thought, well, of course, the food, because that's my favorite food. And the number wasn't right. And he begins to talk with them about that. And he says these exact words, when you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, children, What, when you decide what you're going to believe, is it more like guessing the number of small stones or is it more like writing down your favorite food? And they all said, it's more like choosing my favorite food. That makes sense. That's natural. That's the right answer to them. That's their favorite food. The rabbi goes on to say, he gets this answer all the time from the children. And he comes back and he takes them to Jeremiah chapter 17, where the prophet 
warns the people of Israel on who they trust. Choosing one's faith is not like choosing your favorite food. Except for modern culture, and it's not new in our culture, but it is prevalent through every culture, pushes people to choose their faith based on their preference. But Jeremiah 17 says, no, no, there is an objective measure here, not a subjective measure. Habakkuk means wrestling with God, and we've talked about when you wrestle with God, it is always objective. It is never subject to your opinion. If you let that drive the bus, you will redefine God to fit your narrative. Cursed is the man who puts his trust in himself or in another man, in another man's flesh. His heart turns away from the Lord, Jeremiah 17 says. He's like the shrub in the desert and shall not see any good. This is the word of God. It's not mine. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like the tree planted by the water, sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. For its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought. It does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick. Who could know it? You have a faith either in yourself, in the world, which those two are connected, or in God. It does not surprise me to know that the church, and ours is not excluded from this, the church across our country, across the world, is riddled with false faith. Followers of Jesus or to be in the world and not of the world. However, the cosmos that I talked about a week ago has seeped into Christian lives with seemingly harmless ideologies. I, this does not surprise me. It shouldn't surprise you. The reason why it doesn't surprise me is for two reasons. Number one, I know myself. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to give in to these things that sound good. These little cliches or these little half-truths from Scripture that lead me away. That I know I'm prone to wander without accountability, without church covenant. I will get lost. And I'm not surprised because as I have studied the Scriptures... Number two, I have wrestled with what the Bible says about Satan. We take this way too lightly. That he masquerades as an angel of light. That he is the deceiver, was able to lie until one-third of the angels created by God who were in the presence of God singing, holy, holy, holy. Oh yeah, Satan can pull this off. 
and they fell. You read the scriptures and then you understand where the wrath of God comes from. Because he loves so deeply his creation. And Satan hates with a violent, evil, horrific hatred. That he knows if he shows his hand to you, you will flee. And so he subtly creeps in. To steal, kill, and destroy. This subtle ideology came from the beginning. My atheist friend in high school, David, came up to me and said, Andy, seriously, you believe in the Bible? Yes, I do. Okay. He opens his lunch, takes out an apple, and tosses it to me. I catch it. He goes, okay, let me get this straight. The rule was don't eat an apple? That's the dumbest thing I've... What's wrong with an apple? And so you believe that a dude and his dudette ate an apple, and now we all get to go to hell if we don't believe in Jesus. That sounds insane. And I said, you sound, Dave, Dave Carpinella. You sound just like the snake in the garden. It's the same ideology. And he chuckled. We had a deep friendship and a respect. That's exactly what Satan said. Seriously, an apple? Come on. There's nothing wrong with that. That has creeped into the church and into believers' lives. Oh, that's why Israel is where they are. That's why Habakkuk is getting the vision. No, it's not a big deal if you intermingle with pagan gods and worship them. It's not a big deal if you look outside of God's word and you try to follow other human-made or new age or other religious things. It's okay. It's not a huge deal. So with that as the introduction, (laughs) let's get into the word. What is your confession of faith? That's the question I want to ask you today. What is your confession of faith? Another way to put it is what is the substance of your faith? This is what we're going to learn from Habakkuk chapter 2 verses 2 through 5 and specifically verse 4. What is the substance of your faith? This is a crucial question if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a crucial question if you don't want to be duped into thinking you're following Jesus when you're really not. Paul says to the church in Corinth, the church in Corinth 1st and 2nd Corinthians is an indictment against the church. And we're not supposed to judge. It is an indictment where he's discerning, saying, church, you've got worship all wrong. You're out of order. There's chaos. You're manipulating the Holy Spirit. You're lost. In 1st Corinthians 13, Paul says to them, examine yourself. I'm asking you the question, brothers and sisters in Christ, loved ones, I'm asking you the question, What is the substance of your faith? Examine yourselves, Paul says, to see whether or not you are in the faith. James, the half-brother of Jesus, came along and said, hey, did you know that there's a faith that doesn't save? There's a false faith. It was Charles Spurgeon that said this, pay close attention to the condition of your faith and see whether or not you really are in Christ. 
It is an easy thing in the world to give high marks grading your own paper. Be honest and fair. Be gracious. I love this part. Be gracious to all and to others. But rigorous with yourself. Remember, if you're not building on the rock, your house will fall. And so God gives his answer to Habakkuk. And it is an answer that tips Habakkuk to a point of worshiping God in the midst of what they were getting ready to face. Devastation. And he says, write this down and wait because it's going to happen. He gives a clear vision and he says, write and wait. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets so that they may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appropriate time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow, but wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. He gives him a vision. Not just instruction, he gives him a picture, a vision. He says, write it down. It moves Habakkuk from worrying to worshiping. The whole third chapter is amazing from Habakkuk's heart. I want to say, when you see the glory of God, and that's why we come and gather, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our attention on the glory and holiness of God. And so we try to sing songs directed to God. We open up his word, which is about God. We take the focus off of ourselves so that we can see the holiness of God. And when you see the holiness of God, you will begin to believe his word. And it gives faith to accept his word or his will. When you see the glory of God and believe his word, it gives you faith to accept his will. Write it down. Make it plain for everybody to see. So the generation after generation after generation, when they fly by this thing, they'll see it and they'll know what it says. F.F. Bruce says, so that the one who reads it may read with ease. This writing was to be permanent so that generation again and generation would read it and it would be in public. Bruce explains this phrase to mean not that the person who reads it will start running, but rather that the reader will be able to take it at a glance. So it needs to be large and legible in its writing. The eye runs over the text with ease. This is what he says explains the vision. It's like our big tractor out front. We want people to drive by and go, oh, oh, day camp. And they get the idea of what's going on and the basic information. And they come in and get the details. The vision has been written down and recorded. This vision, by the way, helps Habakkuk to see out of the chaos. Without God's word, you will be encompassed by the chaos. It will shroud you, it will blind you, and it will control you. When Heidi and I were in Phoenix, 
we used to uh, lived in Phoenix. Every year we try to go downtown to a restaurant we loved. And we drive in the middle of downtown. It's chaos. There's, you're down on the street and uh, people everywhere, cars everywhere. And then you go into this building and you take the hotel elevator all the way to the top floor to this place called the Compass Room. I think it's called the Compass Grill now if it's still there. And it's a circular building up above the city of Phoenix. And in a half hour, an hour, I don't remember, you sit there and the whole restaurant rotates 360 degrees. And I remember one time we were in a hurry. We're trying to make our reservation. We get there. It was just chaos. And we get in the elevator. We get to the top. We get to our seat. You look down. Completely different view. You look down and Phoenix is like a perfect square grid forever. It's easy to navigate. It's easy to get around. You see from a high view how everything is ordered and designed. But when you're on the ground in the chaos, you don't see that. All you know is the stuff that's moving around you. The scriptures help to give us a high view of God. His sovereignty, his control, and his will. See, Habakkuk learned this lesson. When he looked at life from an earthly vantage point, it seemed that God was indifferent and didn't care. That God didn't care about evil or injustice. But God gave him a divine perspective. That changed him. Warren Wearsby says the revelation God give was gave was a future time about a future. Was for a future time and about a future time. While the immediate application in Habakkuk, was the end of the Babylonian captivity, the writer of Hebrews, who quotes verse 4, interprets it to refer also to the return of Jesus Christ. Led by the Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews changes it to he, and he applies it to the Lord. He says, for yet a while, a little while, he that shall come, will come, and not tarry. This is an important few verses to help us understand the significance of God's written word. This cannot be overstated. God affirms in his word his trustworthiness. And he reveals truth. And Habakkuk says it isn't a lie because God cannot lie. The fullness of the vision may require waiting, but it will come to pass at the right time. What is the vision? The vision is God rescuing people from sin. The vision is a larger picture of the gospel, not just rescuing from the Babylonians, but the larger picture and story of the Bible that we are all sinners. We are all bent away from God. 
We are all born with a high view of ourselves. We love ourselves a whole lot, and we don't love God a whole lot. Something has to change that. God has to rescue us from our sin. This is the vision. This is what he's pointing to. And after he makes this clear, verse 4 gives us a clear contrast. A clear contrast in faith. The faith of the conceited versus the faith of the confident. There's a difference between the two. They can sound the same, but here we see pride and surrender. We see the conceited versus the confident in God. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within. Yes, the Babylonians were puffed up with pride over their military might, their great achievements. Their empire was impressive. In the words of Nebuchadnezzar, who was king, he says this, is it, it is not this great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, Daniel chapter 4. Isn't this amazing? Look what I have built. Pride. Pride always, always twists a person from the inside out. I know this personally. Pride always twists. This is why it says he's not upright. It means the appetite is so crooked and sinful, he or she can't even see it. Pride makes this person restless. They're never satisfied, Habakkuk 2, verse 5. They're never satisfied. They're constantly looking out and completely ignorant to within. I, 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 I feel, I think, I don't. Their mind's eye drives the bus. And then, after he defines pride, or illustrates it, he speaks eight words that are the epicenter of the book. Maybe even the Bible. But the righteous shall live by faith. But the righteous shall live by faith. Righteous. Tzaddik is the Hebrew word. It means just, lawless, blameless. The just, the lawless, the blameless. The prideful one says, yeah, that's me. Not explicitly, but their way, their law, their justice, their vantage point, It's not their opinion. It's just a stated fact. That's not the righteous we're talking about. There are none that are righteous, not one. All have sinned and turned away from God. The righteous that we're talking about here have been made righteous by the only one that is righteous, Jesus 
Christ himself. That righteous will live by his faith in Jesus. Faith in the Greek is pistis, which means belief or trust. But faith in the Old Testament has a little bit more traction for what we're trying to get here. Emuna is the word. It means faithfulness, steadfast, and firmness. So important that you embrace this. That you get. Faith is so hard and complex to define. But it is imperative because false faith is catastrophic. Hebrews 11, Hebrews, the book, gives us a foundation for how we can grapple and understand faith. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. False faith thinks it's pleasing to God, but it's not. Hebrews 10 says, My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. How do we get to a biblical understanding of faith? Hebrews 11. Now, faith is assurance. Assurance means standing under or support. What is the substance of your faith? Hupo, under. Histomy, to stand. This is what assurance means. What is under? What is supporting your faith? Now, faith is the assurance, it says, of things hoped for. This word hope is crucial. Its original meaning is to wait for salvation with joy and confidence that's not wishful thinking it's hope things hope for and the conviction of things not seen for by it people of old receive their commendation by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of god and that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible How do you define faith? Faith is confident obedience. I put those two words in purposefully because faith is not just confident. It's confident obedience in something that has been promised to you that is not yet realized. To be honest, it's a definition, but it's more of a declaration. Because really, the Bible does more illustrating of what faith is than defining it. Have you ever noticed that? Faith has kind of two imperative parts based on Hebrews 11. There's confidence and conviction. There's confidence of things hoped for. God has promised to save those who have authentic, real faith. There's 
confidence in things that are hoped for, and there's a conviction that into things that aren't fully seen or understood. That's why the Bible says to live by faith. This applies, applies to past, present, and future aspects of the Christian life. This is the substance of our faith, past, present, and future. If you look at the times you put your faith in yourself, and you look at your past, when you put your faith in yourself, not in God, your past is going to say, messed up, messed up, messed up, messed up, messed up. Present. In the present circumstances, with all the things and chaos that's going around. When you put your faith in yourself, messed up, messed up, messed up, and your hope for a future based on your trust in yourself, there's no hope in that. Past, present, and future. Faith saves us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and future presence of sin. We will receive the gift of God, God himself for all eternity, free from pain, sin, chaos, hurt, and disease. We're called to live by faith and nothing else. Faith alone. Now, Luther wrestled with this. Faith is never alone. It's always followed by works. But your works don't save you. But this creeps in. This creeps in and it takes over and all these weird things start happening in churches. We got to do more. We got to do it this way. We got to do it like this. You got to say this, stand here, do this. And it all just takes the focus off of true faith. We live by faith. Some live by devotions or Bible study. Those things are good. Some live by works. Those things are good. Some live by feelings. God created us to be feeling people or by circumstances. All of these are meaningless and perhaps dangerous, it has been said, without faith in God. The Bible illustrates faith, like I said, way more than it defines it. So in trying to help us understand, let me just do a quick run through how the Bible, and we could spend 20 weeks on this. I've tried to shrink it down. So it's in your notes. We're going to move fairly quickly. I'm just going to give you a picture of what the Bible says to try and illustrate what faith looks like. And I want you to then wrestle with where is your confession of faith? Where's the substance of your faith? And does it match this in your everyday life? Faith is believing God enough to go. Faith is a believing God enough to go. In his utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers reminds us that faith is less about the destination and more about knowing the one taking us there. This is illustrated all throughout the Bible. He says, faith never knows where it's being led, but it loves and knows the one who's doing the leading. It is a life of faith, not of intellect and reason, but a life of knowing God that makes us go. Abraham illustrated this. You see it in the Old Testament, and you see it in Hebrews. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, Romans 4. Genesis 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your family, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. He didn't know where he was supposed to go. 
The word of the Lord came and said, go, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. That's Genesis chapter 12, but Hebrews 11 reaches back and says, Abraham went. He didn't know where he was going. Faith that doesn't move you or change you is a false faith. Move you where? Closer to God's word and his will. How do you know? That's why we're the church. That's ecclesia. That's why it's not just sign the dotted line of membership. It's covenant. We're in relationship to hold each other other accountable to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Faith that doesn't move you. If you're just sitting there, yeah, I got faith, and you're not moving and being changed and transformed, it's a false faith because the, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, changes us. Faith is, number two, trusting God enough to wait. This can be hard. It's believing God enough to go, but it's also trusting God enough to wait. In Genesis 12, God promised that he would make Abraham a great nation. He was already 75 years old at the time, and his wife was barren. He says, you're going to have a lot of kids, but you're going to have to wait another 25 years. And then at age 100... Faith in this story means trusting God to keep a seemingly forgotten and impossible promise. Why do you need to know God's word? How are you going to know what he's promising you? Don't take my word for it. I'm fallible. Read your Bible. One that has not been modified a thousand times to fit a human narrative. There are a lot of bad translations out there. Abraham took God's word And at 100 years old, his wife gave birth to a son. Faith is trusting God enough to wait for his perfect timing. That is so hard because we know what we need when we need it and we want it. But faith is trusting God to do the impossible when it suits him and when it serves his glory. That's what faith is. Saving faith does not allow you and I to take the glory. Number three, faith is, listen, fearing God enough to sacrifice. Fear of God is not really talked about a whole lot. But saving faith is rooted in a fear of God. It leads you to be willing to sacrifice. This is probably the climax of Abraham's faith. This illustrates something that is defiant towards the world. Genesis 22, God made an unbelievable demand. You have got to be kidding me. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Morah and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will tell you. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Abraham's response is probably the greatest illustration of faith in the entire Bible. Does it? You should read that story. You should pray for that kind of faith. 
powerful illustration. He gets to that point, and then all of a sudden, God says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, I'm here. God said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know that you now fear God. And seeing that you have not withheld even your son, your only son, from me. According to this passage, Abraham feared God and therefore acted faithfully, no matter what faith. Illustrated here is a healthy fear that motivates us to do what is right in accordance with God's word and required without being paralyzed by potential consequences. We fear God if we have saving faith more than the loss of anything that is precious in our lives. Why? Because God is good, and even if it seems bad. By the way, the scripture canon is closed. So a false teacher gives you new prophecy and says, sacrifice your son or daughter. Don't do it. We have the written word of God. It's closed. You go to this book, and you let a solid hermeneutic and interpretation lead you in a community of faith. I thought I would give that disclaimer out just in case somebody's mad at their son. Don't worry, Zach. I'm not mad at you. Faith is fearing God enough to make possible sacrifice, impossible sacrifices. Faith is desiring God enough to pursue. Faith is looking to God to provide what no one else can. There must be a component of seeking and yearning. It's a desire that the Spirit wells up to pursue. We see this illustrated in the life of Moses. Hebrews 11.24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had it made. Comfort, riches, food. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered it the reproach of Christ greater of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. There's nothing weak about saving faith. It is striving, fighting, pressing, and pursuing God. And last, faith is loving God. This is imperative. It's loving God. Enough to endure all the way to the end. Faith is ultimately about loving God and choosing Him above all earthly allegiances, making this choice will open a person up to ridicule and persecution. Faith is loving God enough to endure to the end. Saving faith, Hebrews 12 is written by God, authored by God, and finished by God. 
Jesus is the founder and finisher of our faith. Lovingly enduring is fuel for saving faith. In Hebrews, the phrase by faith is illustrated time and time and time again, over 20 times. To live by faith means to believe God's word and to obey it no matter how we feel, no matter what we see, or what the consequence may be. Faith that is only in your head based on a set of facts about God and his redeeming work is the faith of the devil or the demons. If you believe, if you truly believe and have faith in God, you will move. It will cause you to move. It will cause you to wait. It will cause you to give and make sacrifices. It will cause you to pursue and endure to the end. Real faith, it's complex, but it is a glorious thing. It's a gift. It's a decision. It's a life living by faith. So defiant faith, and then let me close is not believing because of the proof, but obeying despite your will and leaning, fully leaning, believing, trusting in God's faithfulness. The last verse He gives a clear intoxication in regards to desire and dominance. He goes back to the the person that has no faith in God. So as we close, I want to just use an illustration to paint a picture to help you think about, reflect on, the substance of your faith. This past week, a student that grew up here Went to seminary, is now a pastor in the Bay Area, Matt Scrabeck. He and I, um, as he was in the youth ministry, we kept in contact. He emailed me and sent me a, or texted me a little video. I was so great. It was so encouraging. And I was right in the middle of studying this. And I texted him back and said, that is perfect. I'm using that on Sunday in my sermon. So I'm giving credit to Matt. And then this is a video he sent of Alistair Begg. If you don't know who he is, he's a wonderful Bible teacher. You can go and look up this video. But Alistair Begg, preaching, asks the question. He goes back, and he's talking about faith and works and how works don't save you. The evangelism explosion question. I went through this evangelism program. The number one question they ask, they teach you to ask people, is if you were to die today and you would stand before God, what would you say? And a lot of people give a works answer. Alistair Begg says this, if you answer in the first person, you're lost. You're off. I, I, I believed, I prayed, I trusted. I feel, I never, I am. 
It's the wrong answer. I went to church. But if you answer in the third person, this is from a heart of saving faith. The the third person is because he, because Jesus. Think about that. Alistair goes on to say, think about the thief on the cross. He, he dies and he goes to the gates and the angel's there. He's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? What are you doing here? I, I don't know. But just a second ago, you were cursing Jesus with your buddy and now you're here. How'd you get here? I don't know. I just don't know. Let me go get my supervisor. He's back. Oh, you. What are you doing here? What do you know, the supervisor says, about justification by faith? I have no idea what that is. What do you mean you don't know? What church were you a member at? I don't even know what a church is. Never went to church in my life. On what basis are you here? Alistair Begg says this powerful statement. The thief on the cross says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Saving faith. The man on the middle cross said I could come. False faith makes us trust in ourselves, our experiences, our efforts. Trusting wicked philosophies and practices and trends of the cosmos, trends of the world. By grace, you have been saved through faith, not of your works, so that you can't say, look what I did. You're saved by grace, unearned and undeserved, and you receive it as a gift. And if you've never received God's grace, or if pride and sin has been shrouding you in your relationships, walk away, repent of those things. I know it sounds an old, archaic, Billy Grahamish. But repentance didn't leave the gospel. It's a springboard into new life. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you at any point tonight or today to come down. We want to connect you and help you follow Jesus.